Thanks for tuning in to week two of the Ruth series at City Church. We are so excited that you chose to worship with us today. Our goal is to share the gospel with our community, church family, and online viewers like you. If you live in Savannah or any of the surrounding areas, we would love to meet you at our Savannah campus at 1624 East 38th Street. Remember, resources like these are meant to be supplemental, and community with other believers is very important. So get yourself to church. If you like what you've seen today, you can find out more by visiting citychurch.life or by clicking the link in the description. So last week we started on a new series, Book of Ruth. Last week we did chapter one, and uh, Caleb did an excellent job and brought the word last week. Uh, my takeaway from his, his, the name of his message was identity, uh, and the takeaway I walked away with it, the best statement I think I heard was, when you know who you are, it changes everything. That's awesome. Um, Caleb's name, anybody remember what it means? Mighty Warrior. Hoorah. Yeah. That would be, he should have been a jarhead. So I think everything I've ever seen from Caleb, either he's trying to or he is living up to that name. That's an awesome name. Uh, He knows his name, he's living up to it, but today we go to the second series. Ruth chapter two, Ruth chapter two, I chose the name for this message is destiny. And destiny by definition is the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person or a thing in the future. You know, a lot of people think destiny is absolute and there's nothing that can do to change it. I don't accept that. I don't think the word of God supports that. Uh, I believe that you can make choices in your life and I think the choices we make in life completely affect our destiny. And chapter two of Ruth, is all about that. Uh, There's a young woman named Ruth who makes some really good choices uh, and it changes her destiny. You can change your destiny as well. I look back at my name. I listened to Caleb last week and I've looked it up before, but I went back and looked again. Sometimes what you remember is a little different, but I went back and looked. My name is James. I know I go by Jim. I've never met a, well, very few people that are named James actually go by James. There's a few, but most of us go by Jim or some version of that. But the name James is derived from a Hebrew name, Jacob. It's not real impressive. Um, It means surplanter, which doesn't get used a whole lot in Savannah, Georgia. It also means heel catcher. Remember, he grabbed his twin brother's heel and tried to be first getting out of the womb. And then it seemed like he spent the rest of his life trying to cheat his way to get there. And he cheated his brother twice. Really, my namesake was a con man. (laughs) Wow. Not exactly mighty warrior. Uh, But here's the deal. He cheated his brother twice. The worst thing he did, at least in my opinion, is he waited until his father was an old blind man and he cheated him. But the circumstances of his life, the consequences of his choices, the things he lived and worked changed his life until he wrestled with God and God changed his name. Changed his name to Israel. Now, I was remembering the name Israel meaning governed by God. And I went back and was doing some research and trying to confirm that. That's what I've always believed. And it may very well be true, but what I couldn't find it actually in a writing. But what I could find, everything I found that confirmed the name Israel represents the struggle that he went through, the confrontation that he had with God, and the transformation of his life that was a result of it. And he was never the same. I got a new name. 
If you weren't named something like Mighty Warrior, something you're proud of to tell people what the definition is, you can have your name changed. And I'm not talking about going to the courthouse. I'm talking about what really matters. Revelation tells me that Christ Jesus changed my name and he's got a new name for me. I don't even know what it is yet, but I'm gonna find out one day because I'm gonna see him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Revelation 2:17. Anybody got a new name? I got a new name. I'm going to find out what it is when I get to him. You could say the book of Ruth, if you looked at it, it kind of boils down to at least the way I look at it is, where's God at? Where is he? Because he doesn't reveal himself in the sense of what we are expecting to see him reveal himself like he does throughout most of the Old Testament. You could say this because we say it from time to time, don't we? Why doesn't God just come down here and fix this? Why doesn't God just show up and change it? See, we have to make a choice throughout our life. We have to choose whether we're going to live up to our name, like Caleb, or we have to choose whether we're going to allow God to change our name, like James. But we always make choices, and we can find ourselves making this choice. I can always choose to quit. I can always quit and just sit down and do nothing. Or I can get up, and I can transform and allow my life to be changed. I can work when it's time to work. We all choose how are we going to respond This message today is all about getting up and getting to work. I know we pray. I know we seek God. I know we wait on God. And there's some times you wait on God. And this morning before the message started, I was talking to somebody and he was talking to me about something he's expecting in his life. And he's like, I don't know whether I should do something about it or wait. We all deal with that. But there are some times that you just have to get up and do what you can do. And that's what Ruth does. God doesn't show up in the sense of what we'd like to see. He doesn't bring an angel to bring a visitation. He doesn't give uh, some type of vision. He doesn't bring a prophet on the scene to speak something to the people. He's just kind of in the background showing up the way he typically does. He's everywhere. And Naomi and Ruth, Ruth, they're facing agonizing hardship. But with God, hardship's not hopelessness, no matter what you're dealing with. So back in chapter one, we remember, remind you, Naomi and Ruth, or not Naomi and Ruth, Naomi and Elimelech, her husband, along with their two sons who will remain nameless, they moved to Moab. Elimelech dies. The two sons get married. The two sons die. Here's Naomi sitting in Moab where she doesn't belong with two daughter-in-law she can't support, and they're in a desperate situation. As a woman in that day and time, especially being in a foreign land, Without a husband, without a man, without someone to provide for them, she was without the ability to own land. She was without the ability to sow seed and grow crops, and they were an agricultural society. If you can't grow, you can't eat, and if you can't eat, you can't live. They were in a desperate situation. Everything in their structure is all about the land. If you ever read the Old Testament at all, you'll see it's all about the land. It's all about the land God provided to them. It's all about what happens to the land. And once they got into the land, then the land was divided 
by tribe. It was divided by clan. And then when a tribe moved into the section of land that belonged to them, they would divide, subdivide that up into the family units. So each family has a section of land they're responsible for. And that land is there to provide for them. But they have to work the land and they have to maintain the land. They have to keep it in the family unit. The only exception to that was the Levites who were dedicated and committed to God. And even then there was some land that was available for them to plant on, even though they didn't mean they didn't own it. The people got in trouble because as farmers, you've got to have rain. They've done some amazing things on there today. If you go over to Israel, you'll see they've amazing ways to irrigate the land. There's not a lot of water. There's only one freshwater lake. So water's a big deal. Uh, so they would get into trouble because there wasn't rain because God's bringing discipline. And the problem with that is, are you going to seek God about it? Are you going to go to God and go, God, are you allowing these things in my life to bring me back to you? Or like them, will you be tempted and go looking after false idols that promised what they can't deliver? So famine was often the result of sinful turning away from God. But this sets the stage for a woman named Naomi to learn how to depend on God. Because the God we know is the God that sees us even when we can't see him. You ever go through seasons you're like, God, where you at? Let's be real. Yeah, we all do. There's always times you're going, God, where are you? But he never took his eyes off you. You're the apple of his eye. He loves you more than you can even believe or understand. And he's watching out for each one of us. There's no obvious miracles, but God's especially working through the actions of a few faithful people. And he'll do the same thing in us. So chapter 1, we saw it last week. It ended right here. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 22, it ended with Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. These people lived and died according to what they could grow. They've been through a long famine. They spent about 10 years, if I remember the scripture correctly, over in Moab. I don't know how long the famine lasted, but there was a long, lengthy famine the only thing you can do when you grow, I have to simplify things so I can understand it. And I've never been a farmer. But the way I understand farming is you take some of what you have, you already got, and that's going to be seed, and you put it in the ground, and you let it die so that you can, you can gather a harvest and get an increase in the end. So you've got to give up what you have to get more of what you need. But if there's nothing coming no rain, then there's no growth, and it's famine, and everything they're putting in the ground is dying, or they're getting some type of blighted small crop at the least. But now, it's barley harvest. It's barley harvest. Can you imagine the excitement? They're looking out over the fields, and the fields are ready to be harvested. They've been without. Everybody's involved in either one of two things. Everybody's either in the field, and they're bringing in the harvest, or they're back at home and they're processing the barley that's being brought back. And they're doing the thing you do with barley so that it can be useful. Unless one, you don't have any land. Or two, you were living in Moab where everybody else was planting. So here's Naomi and Ruth and they're back, but they've got nothing to harvest. Because they weren't there for the planting season. Ruth chapter 2 picks it up right there. In Ruth 2, verse 1 and 2, says, Now Naomi had a relative of the husbands, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
So the writer's setting the stage and pulling all the characters into the story. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I, can find, I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So don't miss this. There's only four chapters in the book of Ruth, but six times in four chapters, Ruth is referred to continually as Ruth the Moabite. There's a good reason for that. Caleb brought this word to us last week, but I'm going to remind you, who were the Moabites? The Moabites were the descendants of Lot. Lot and his wife and his two daughters, they escape from Sodom and Gomorrah when God brings destruction. The wife, of course, is perishes on the way, and here's uh, Lot with his two daughters, and the two daughters get him drunk and essentially rape him over two nights. It's a terrible story. It's not one you want to talk about, but the thing I love about God's word is it doesn't hide from the truth. And just because it's in God's word doesn't mean God condones it. You have to differentiate. So God tells the story even when it's not a pretty picture. So what you end up with is the nation of Israel. And this is at one time frame during the nation's history. You've got the nation of Israel down here where it says kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah. Of course, this was after the tribes split after Solomon. Two tribes in the south, ten in the north. But here they're surrounded with the Philistines that still have a foothold over in Gaza where Amazingly, they're still having trouble today. But then you've got these three other groups, kingdom of Ammon, the kingdom of Moab, and then the kingdom of Edom. So Ammon was the youngest daughter's descendants. Moab, the one we're talking about, is the oldest daughter's descendants. And then Jacob's brother, my namesake, the heel catcher, the con man, uh, before he was changed, his brother is living down in Edom. So there's a lot of stories about these surrounding groups of people throughout the Old Testament, and it's good to just understand who we're talking about. So when they went to Edom, they left Jerusalem in the west, passed over the Jordan River, and went to the east where they had no business being, and they resided over on the eastern side of the Dead Sea in Moab. They didn't belong there. They weren't supposed to go there, but they went anyway. That today, if you can see that, is modern-day Jordan just to put it in a context where you can see where it's at. It's bad enough that they were birthed in the way that they were birthed, but as Caleb passed out to you last week and, and presented, when they went into the land, the king of Moab hired Balaam to curse them. Balaam went, the whole talking donkey story, you can go back and read that yourself. But when he went and he tried to curse them, every time he opened his mouth, what came out of his mouth was blessing. Because how many of you realize and recognize that nobody can curse what God has blessed? If God's got a blessing on your life, if you're his, he's blessed you, nobody can curse you. It won't stick. But they did find that they had trouble, but it wasn't because of a curse. It was because of the choices the Israelite men had. They chose to get connected with Moabite women, and when they connected with Moabite women, they started worshiping gods that weren't theirs to worship. So again, choices and consequences follow everything that we do, and our destiny is affected by that. But because of that, when God gave the law to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 23, he forbid any Moabite from joining the assembly of the Lord for up to 10 generations. And it sounds harsh, but in Deuteronomy 23, he forbids them for seeking a treaty with Moab or even having friendship with them. And it says, as long as they lived. Now, the reason I'm making this point is I want you to see the courage it took for Ruth to choose to leave Moab, her homeland, as desperate as things were, and follow her mother-in-law to a land she didn't know, not knowing what she could expect when she got there. 
Now she's not only chose to follow her, she's there and she's chose to get up, go out into a field with some people she doesn't know among strangers and do what she can do about providing for them. So in Ruth chapter two, verse three, it says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the, of the clan of Elimelech. If anybody's gonna, if they're gonna survive, somebody's gotta do something. And apparently Naomi wasn't capable, so Ruth said, I can get out and do some manual labor. I can work in the field. I'm willing to do it, no matter how big the risk is. I can go out and pick up what we can use so we can eat, so we can live. And this is really what God called gleaning. This was God's provision. It's laid out in the Old Testament. There's a lot of things intertwined in these four short, short chapters. Uh, and it could take a lot of time to go through it all. And I encourage you to go back and read about this in Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24. God lays this out, and it was God's provision. They were agricultural people. And as you can see from this picture, it wasn't easy work. This was all day bent over at the waist. This was working hard and bringing in enough to take care of you. But even then, gleaning, if you were a farmer, and they all were, by gleaning, if this were a field, picture the inside of this room is a huge barley field, when we go out to glean, or not to glean, but to harvest, as the landowner, if I were, then I was allowed, I'd take my workers into the field, my workers would pass through the field working as they are, shown here, but they were not allowed to go into the corners of the field. They weren't allowed to work the edges of the field. Anything they found that had fallen on the ground, they had to leave. And then when we made our pass through the field and we're finished and we look back as the owner and I go, oh wow, y'all left a lot. You can't go back and do a second pass. God required according to the law that you leave everything you left leave the corners untouched, anything on the ground, you leave it. And what that did, that allowed the widow and the orphan to come out and glean. They couldn't walk with the reapers, those that are doing the work of bringing it in, but they could pass behind them at a distance and everything left behind. They had the right and God's allowance to go and pick that up because they didn't have land and they had nothing to harvest. So it gave them a way by honest uh, effort to go out and provide for themselves. It was allowed for the poor. But Ruth's got a problem. Ruth has a real problem. Ruth's a Moabite woman, and she's facing real discrimination because she's not an Israelite. And I am certain that they would be able to tell the difference. It had the potential of really being dangerous, being a Moabite. She had absolutely no idea what to expect when she walked out in the field, and she had no idea whose field she was stepping in when she stepped into it. If you don't believe me, later on in the stories we go through this scripture, you'll find both Boaz warning her not to go into another field, and you'll find Naomi telling her, stay in Boaz's field, don't go in another field, because they had no idea what might happen to a young woman, maybe even an attractive woman from another country that's wandering around in a field trying to work for the day. She's a courageous woman, and I'm just trying to make that point. Remember what Caleb pointed out to us last week. This was during the time of the judges. And the book of Judges tells us during that time, every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's not a shining example of the Israelite people when they were serving God. But her loyalty to Naomi was more than her fear. Anybody ever been fearful of anything? We're all human, right? We all face fear. You know what courage is? Courage isn't never being fearful. Courage is when you are afraid and you get up and go anyway. You know, this year, this week was, I think, the 75th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. And uh, this week I saw a, a story, and there were some men in the beginning of the story that were 
at the time it was filmed were alive who were there at the Normandy invasion. Old men now, but they were young men when they came off a landing craft into, into Normandy and facing absolute certain death, and many of them did give their lives. But the, the men they were interviewing, every one of them said the same thing. They basically came down to this. They said, yeah, we were scared to death, but I could still somehow manage to think, and I could still do what I needed to do even though I was facing fear. Fear is fear. Courageous is not being not fearful, but it's being fearful and still doing what needs to be done. And Ruth was courageous. And then when she went, God was working in the background because they had a close relative. They had a close relative of the man in Limelech. And the thing about that that's critical is there's also another story you could go into this where you could go down and go through Deuteronomy chapter 25 and talk about the Levite marriage. And the way God laid this out because they were people of the land and because the land was tied to a family and because that family maintained ownership as the family line continued, every man needed a son. So if someone was married and they had no son and they died, their brother was required, according to Deuteronomy 25, to take the brother's wife, raise up a son to his name so that that name would not stop, but that name would continue on. And then the land was tied to the family so it was very practical. It may sound strange now, but it made sense in that day. And that was the way it was set up. So that would be known as a Gael, or the way we would think of it as a kinsman redeemer. And that sets us up for next chapter three. I'm not going to get into this very deep. You'll get it there. It's a beautiful story. But a man was required to do this. Boaz is a close relative. He's the kinsman redeemer. And she just happens she just happened to show up in Boaz's field. God uses what appears to be just chance events to set things up. And he's not bringing a word to anybody. He's just in the background and he's knitting it all together. And he's putting a beautiful story together so everybody's prepared and everybody's taken care of. If you, went, if you go to work tomorrow and you think that your work is the complete result of your effort, that's a hard way to do life. I am convinced when I go to work in the morning, the Lord Jesus goes with me. Any creativity that I have, any ability to function and accomplish something comes because he's with me and he's going with me. That's how I do life and that's how I believe all believers in Christ do life. I believe the word of God even bears that up. He said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. So there's a work involved. This isn't being lazy and doing nothing. There is work involved, but take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when I go to work, productivity and ability come from him. He's the one that makes it work. I tried to do some research on this and I couldn't really find anything to define it. So bear with me if you would just for a moment. The way I imagine this, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but the way I imagine this is the land over there is not a whole lot of flat land. There's a lot of mountainous areas. So where you can plant is somewhat restricted and then the water makes it a big deal as well. So they would have big areas of flat land where they'd be a family or a tribe would own that section. They'd subdivide it up to families. So I don't know how they knew where the edge of my field stopped and 
my brother and the family's field started. I'm sure they had something to market, but I can't imagine little dirt roads going in between these. I'm imagining one big open field with barley just as far as you can see, and my section goes from here to somewhere out there that's somehow designated. Your section starts from there and goes to the next wherever the marking is at. So somehow Ruth just shows up walking into that field. Hey, can I do some gleaning here? And she finds herself standing in Boaz's field before she even knows who Boaz is. And the way that happens is God just guides us. We don't know how she did it. We don't know if she prayed. We don't know if God spoke to her somehow. We just see a young, courageous woman get up and go out, and she ends up right where she needs to be for the next chapter in her life that God's working in her. And in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, we find Boaz shows up at the field. And Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, who's that girl back there? Whose young woman is this? So what is it that caught Boaz's attention? I can speculate. I'm going to come back to this again in a few minutes, but just think about this. He comes out. His reapers are working. They're doing what they should do. The supervisor's on site making sure they do, and here's somebody over here gleaning in the background. Who's that young woman back there? In Ruth chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it continues, the plot builds, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Boaz asked the question. He got the answer. She's the woman from Moabite. She showed up, asked if I can glean. We let her and she's been working all day. So in other words, she's a loyal young woman who's courageous and she has a strong work ethic. He's impressed. I'll tell you where I, where I built my, strong, my work ethic. I'll just tell you a true story. First job I ever had, I was 15 years old. I was just about to get my driver's license. And I got a job. A, a friend of mine helped me connect with a place he worked. It was called Naaman's Meat. It was in a little old town nobody's heard of. Saraland, Alabama. Yes. <laughs> Touch your Lord. Now, you've probably heard of Mobile, Alabama, maybe. It's right outside of that, a little bit north of that. But, uh, so I always say I'm from Mobile because nobody's ever heard of the other town. But Naaman's Meats, except for one exception, it's right there in Saraland. Got my first job there, little meat market, man named Naaman. So he's running this meat market, and it's a butcher shop. So Jim McLean comes there after school in the afternoon at the appropriate time. I show up. I get my gear together because it's a mess. They've been cutting meat and carving meat and doing what they do in a butcher shop all day long. There's fat and meat particles and blood drippings all over the floor, all over the counter, uh, the meat blocks where they do the chopping at and all the utensils. And it was a pretty messy job, but I would work that for a few hours each afternoon to clean up so they could start all again the next morning. And I got a whopping $1.15 an hour. Ooh, yeah, that's nothing to sneeze at because the minimum wage was, if I remember right, about $2.25. So I was well under the minimum wage. Wasn't real happy, but I was glad to have a job and was bringing in a little bit of money. Now, the part about this story where it turns into my work ethic was 
one Saturday a month, if I remember correctly, Mr. Naaman needed Jim to show up on a Saturday morning early and go in the freezer. Now, the freezer, they had sides of beef hanging in there and other meat in boxes, and this stuff would drip all over and the floor would be messy, and it had to be cleaned because it's a health issue, right? Health department. So Jim would have to put on a heavy coat, go inside the freezer, and I don't remember how long it took me to do this. It seemed like it took forever. I'd actually make more money because I had a few hours on the job, but I was inside of a meat locker all, the whole time I did the job. I, I can deal with cold a whole lot more now than I could then. So uh, at about 15 and now I was 16, I wasn't really enjoying the Saturday part. And if I remember the story correctly, I picked a couple of opportunities to have a good reason why I couldn't be there on Saturday. The first time I had a good reason for not being there on Saturday, Mr. Naaman was pretty understanding. He was okay. The second Saturday I did not show up and had a good reason why I couldn't be there. The next time I showed up for work, Mr. Naaman had a conversation with young Jim McLean and said, I think his words were something to the effect of, Jim, I appreciate your work. I've got to have somebody I can count on. Meat locker's got to be cleaned. I'm going to have to find somebody else. I know it was only $1.15 an hour or so, but still, I got fired. I'm 16 years old, my first job, and Mr. Naaman fired me. That galvanized, it's probably the best thing he ever did for me, because that galvanized something in me that is with me to today. I might one day get fired from a position. It hasn't happened since. It could happen at any time. But I tell you what, I'm going to work as hard as I can to be at the top of the food chain or as close to it as I can get. I'm not ever going to have somebody come to me and say, really appreciate having you on the team, but you're not quite cutting it. They may have another reason to get rid of me, but I won't go through that again. It impressed me. It impressed me that strong work, a strong work ethic goes a long way. So Boaz, he's taking notice of this young woman. He speaks to her in, in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He says, Boaz says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let her eyes, let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So Boaz is taking notice, and then Boaz is taking action. Keep your eye on my field. Whatever they had that differentiated the field, he was telling her, you see those ladies there that are working? Stay with them. Don't fall behind them and don't leave the field, because as long as you stay in my field, I can protect you. You leave my field, I can't do anything for you. I have to ask, were the other fields dangerous? It seems they must have been. Boaz must have been aware of some of the fields around them. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made this point. And again, Naomi wouldn't re, uh, reinforce what he says later. Uh, there's a reason that she's being told this. So Boaz treats her with respect, which amazes me. It really touches me as a man. He treats her with respect because he's a man of honor and he's a man who respects people. And I just say this. The other fields may have been dangerous, but on top of that, any man who doesn't treat women with respect, he doesn't understand what authentic real manhood is. Because being a man is not mistreating women. Being a man is respecting women and treating them with respect. And that's what he's doing. 
She responds in kind. She falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother, your native land, and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord. Check this out. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Chapter 2, verse 10 through 13. You have to remember, for this to make sense, she doesn't belong there. She really doesn't have the right to be there. Now, I know there are exceptions in the Old Testament if you came into Israel and you wanted to be one of them. I get all that, but she didn't know what to expect, and his response has put her at ease, and she's responding in kind, letting that be known. But what's important is that she put herself under the covering of the Lord, even though she really doesn't belong there. She put herself under the covering of the Lord. She made a choice. She altered her destiny. Now, Romans chapter 10, I'm going to bounce all the way to the New Testament. Romans 10, verse 11 through 13, bears this up. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I know I just bounced all the way out of the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, but it's all one big story. It all fits together. One's just setting us up for the next chapter and the next phase of this. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The Lord doesn't differentiate all who call upon his name. When someone puts himself under the covering of God, God takes that serious. God calls that covenant. You say, I want to be yours. God says, you're mine. He takes those who call upon him. If you look at Ruth 2, verse 12 again, she had placed herself under the wings of God and she came there to take refuge. When Ruth begged to follow Naomi to Bethlehem, she had no idea what was going to be waiting on her. When she begged Naomi to let her go with her to Bethlehem, she wasn't going, hey, there's some left of, you know, Elimelech's estate. Maybe you can take care of me for a little while. What she was saying is, I'm willing to come there and serve. I want to be part of your family. I want your God to be my God. I want your people to be my people. This young woman was changing her destiny. She had no intention of ever going back to her past. Her past was as dead as her dead husband in the back. I can tell you for myself, I'm never going back. I've got no plan to go back. I've got nothing to go back to. I hope you feel the same way. I don't know how old you were when you came to Christ, but when you came to Christ, he gives you a new name. There's nothing to go back to. There's nothing back there but the dead and the dying and the old me, the old Jim McLean's dead. So there's no me to go back to. I'm living this going forward. Her determination was to be under the covering of God, and he met her determination with abundant provision. That's the beautiful part of this story. So in the meantime, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Don't forget that. We're going to keep reading 
But what happens to what she has left over? And she only ate till she was satisfied. And I'll just be real. If you've ever eaten lunch with me, and I know Mark and Pamela can say amen to this. (laughs) I like to eat. Brenda and I, if we eat, and we do, I eat my portion. She's still working on hers. And then I'm like family dog. I'll sit there and look over at her plate. I may say it. I may not say it. But the look on my face is about like our little dog. It means, are you going to finish that? But she only eats till she's satisfied. And then she gets one of those things I've never needed. And that's the to-go plate, the carry-out box with the bag. I'm eating all my food. She has something left over. And Ruth has something left over. And when she rose to glean, break time's over. It's time to get back to work. She rose to glean and Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her to leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. I don't want you to miss this. We said this was a field. We said the edges had to be left untouched. That what fell to the ground was for the poor and the widow. What you missed the first pass through had to be left behind. So the reapers are up ahead. Those that are working, bent over, pulling up the grain. She's back here in the back, keeping her distance because she can't get too close. Boaz just said, forget that. Let her come up there and join you. He just promoted her. He just brought her up and included her with his workforce that's picking his barley. They're not picking their barley. They're picking Boaz's barley. And then he goes on top of that and he goes, that what you're picking that's mine and you filled up your sack, take some of it and just take it out and lay it on the ground. So Ruth, can do, all she has to do is bend over and pick it up. She doesn't even have to put the effort in. He's moved from being the gleaning to actually being generous. He's taken notice. Is he a single man that's looking at a young, attractive woman? Or is he a single man that loves God and he's looking at a young woman who loves God and is making some right choices and he's seeing integrity, he's seeing courageousness, and he's seeing uh, a strong work ethic? I can think about this. As I was reading through this and studying on this, I thought of Brenda myself. Uh, when I first met her, I was at a young man's house. I can't remember his last name. His name was Mike. It was a birthday party. I was fairly new in that church, had not been there a long period of time, only knew a few people. And I was at this party. I was talking to Brenda's best friend. Me and her talking. Brenda wasn't even there. Brenda walked in the door. I can remember what she was wearing. And she walked in the room, started talking to her friend, introduced her to me, and we started chit-chatting and talking. And she so impressed me. When she opened her mouth, what came out of her mouth was a woman of godly character who loved the Lord, who knew the word, and I was just totally impressed. I was blown away. And I said to the Lord right there on the spot, I said, Lord, if I ever remarry, I want somebody like her. Her character spoke volumes. I'll tell you the truth, though. She was also attractive, and I recognized that. Okay, so I was single. She was single. I noticed she was attractive. What's Boaz doing? He's taking notice of this young woman and her character saying volumes. I don't know if he was single. It seems like he must have been because later on when this all comes together, but I can't speak to it, but he's human, probably a combination of the two. But Boaz does more than just the requirements of the law. Boaz takes us to a whole nother level. He turns us into generosity. He lets Ruth come up and join those that were working 
bringing in his harvest. And on top of that said, on purpose, I want you to take some stuff out and lay it down for her so that she can pick it up. He was making sure that Naomi and Ruth had more than enough. So she gleaned in the field until the evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was an epa of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Check her mother-in-law out. And her mother-in-law said to her, girl, where did you go today? Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name and whom I work today is Boaz, verse 17 through 19. Ruth's a hard worker, but Naomi knows something's up. The reason she knows something's up it's because an epa of barley is an ancient Hebrew dry measure. And the best definition I could find, and there were several, but the one I settled on stated it was about five gallons of barley. So then I thought, okay, how much does barley weigh? And I looked this up, found a conversion table that gave me the assurance that I feel pretty comfortable saying this. Five gallons of barley is about 25 pounds of barley. This sad little sack is the only picture I could find, and that's nowhere near 25 pounds of barley, but girl went home after a full day's work with 25 pounds of barley in a bag on her back, walks in the house, and Naomi goes, what's going on? Because all she was supposed to be able to do is pick from the edges what had fallen, and she shows up with 25 pounds. Where did you glean today? How were you able to gather so much? Me and Brenda have these conversations. I'll tell her something and she'll go, well, did you ask them this? Did you ask that? Why didn't you say this? Why didn't you ask that? Because, ladies, you what? You want to know the answers. You want the details. Naomi's asking some good questions. Where did you go? Whose field was it? How did you gather so much? What in the world is going on here for you to come home with 25 pounds of barley? Who took notice of you? I had to ask myself, I don't work with barley. I don't know. Anybody ever cook barley? What can you make with barley? You can grind it up. You can turn it into a, a, a wheat and basically bake barley bread. Yep. Uh, the other thing I found is you can st not stew it, but you can simmer it for about 20, 25 minutes. And if they say if you simmer it for about 25 minutes, one cup of barley will yield two to three cups of barley. So you've got two single women living alone with 25 pounds of barley the first day. And the scripture says she stayed with Boaz's field all the way through the barley harvest and all the way through the wheat harvest. So last night I lay in bed thinking about this. I wish I could tell you, how long did it take to harvest all the barley? How long did it take to go through the wheat harvest? How many days did she come home with 25 pound sacks on her back? And how much did Ruth and Naomi have stacking up inside the house? I don't know the answers to those, but I pictured in my mind, you pictured in your mind the way you want to. But what I see is God's providing these two ladies to make sure they had more than enough to get them through until they can start working their land again. 25 pounds go a long way. She told her mother-in-law, where'd you glean today? Well, she said, where'd you glean today and who, where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed to the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So Naomi's starting to see something. 
Naomi's starting to see this is more than just getting food to get through the day or the week or the year. She's starting to see a redeemer coming on the scene. She's starting to see a picture starting to take place. And Ruth said, the the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you not that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So the danger was real. She's a courageous, hardworking young woman, and there's a real danger. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law, verse 19 through 23. So Naomi's recognizing something. Naomi is recognizing what seemed hopeless might be starting to look like a promise being kept. It looked absolutely hopeless. These two women went back with nothing and no means, no way to take care of themselves. And God's not only providing for them, he's putting her, connecting her with a redeemer, someone who can connect with her. And in chapter three, you'll see that all come together. What seemed hopeless is now promiseful because the truth is she could have absolutely been assaulted in someone else's field. Do you notice Boaz even told his male workers not to touch her? Don't mess with her. Leave her alone. And he's created a work environment where these men trust him and respect him enough that they do what he tells them to do. It's important because Ruth's a courageous woman. Look, I can sit and I can complain and I can do nothing. And I can ask God why he's not fixing my situation. Or I can get up and I can go do what I can do. And when I get up and I go what I, do what I can do, God shows up and he provides provision as I go. I don't know if he works in your life that way, but I've never heard God speak to me in an audible voice. There's times in my spirit, man, I just know the Lord's speaking to me and I just know that he's telling me something. But there's other times I just have to get up and go do what I can do and trust God that he's going to provide for me. And he certainly did it here. Look, God's the power behind our work. He's the one that's making it prosperous. Every one of us are responsible We say it every week, go change your world. And every one of us are responsible. You might be the manager, you might be the leader, you might own your own business, or you might be a worker in someone else's business or working in somebody else's field. But every one of us is responsible for the tone we set in our workplace. It's up to us to affect the place we work. It's up to us to set the tone of integrity and compassion and respect and work ethic that speaks volumes about people who know and love Christ. Be the agent of change in your place of work, wherever you're at. We affect the world around us or we just conform to it. You might be in a place of work where you go, well, I can't really stand out like that. I've just got to conform and I've got to get along and I've got to just do what they want me to do, even if it's a lack of integrity or, or, or courteousness being displayed. And I would say to that, that's not true. It's up to each one of us to set the tone and set the change. It's up to us to affect the world around us. If not, we can just give up and conform to it. That's not what the Lord called us to do. Boaz, he's running a business in the middle of a situation where the, the, the nation of Israel doesn't have a shining example, but every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And here's Boaz. He's got a field where people are being respected. People are operating in integrity. Boaz is respected by his workers, and he's shown his workers respect. When he sat down at lunch, he ate lunch with them. And he's speaking to a young Moabite woman that didn't really belong there, and he's handing her grain, and he's making sure his workers are providing water for everybody. He's setting the change. He's a change agent. He's affecting. He's changing his world is what he's doing. When they went to Moab, 
It was a temporary move, born out of desperation. They thought, hey, if we stay here, we're going to die. We've got to do something. And they went to Moab. They never intended to stay as long as they stayed, and they didn't intend it to cost them as much as it cost them. But if you're a child of God, you don't have to go to Moab. If you know the Lord, you can stay right where you're at. You can stay where he's put you until he tells you to change, and you can ask him to show up, ask him to provide, ask him what you want me to do where I'm at while I'm there. But if you've gone to Moab, you've left the provision of God. You've gone somewhere you shouldn't have gone. You don't have to stay there. You know, you may be in the room, you may be watching online. If you're somewhere you shouldn't be, you can always come back to God. You can come back to where the house of God is at. And since you're his, he's going to accept you. He's going to receive you. He didn't want you to leave in the first place. But when he come back, he'll receive you when you come. Ruth left everything to follow the God of Naomi. Ruth left everything and she changed her destiny. She changed her family's destiny. I wish I could get into chapter four. I can't wait till we get there. If you know the story, Ruth changes her destiny, her family's destiny, all the way out to us. She has a huge impact. If you're not familiar with the story, you ought to read it. Her children didn't have to grow up and die in Moab. And God didn't leave her without. Luth left everything to follow God. She laid down her life to follow this God that Naomi knew. And her destiny was changed forever. I just challenge you to step out and see what God will do. I, I, I challenge you, if you don't know him, you don't have to leave here today without knowing him. You can come under the refuge that he provides. You can do it here. You can do it online. Uh, let someone know. Pray with someone. We'll have a team in the back to be willing to pray with you. Uh, the Lord wants to provide for you. He wants you to be his, and he's provided everything to make that opportunity possible for you. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We love you, and we worship you, and we're so grateful, Lord, that you've provided for us, that you love us, that you've called to us, that your spirit's here with us, bearing witness to the truth. I thank you, Lord, for those that are here that are answering the call and those, Lord, who may be online that are listening to what you're saying to them. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be strong, courageous men and women who will go, Lord, even when we're fearful, so that we can impact the world around us and change the world as you desire it to be done. We honor you and praise you in Jesus' name and give you all the glory. Amen.